If you peruse your favorite website or newspaper's business section, or even the front page for that matter, you know that artificial intelligence or AI is certainly trending. The applications, the opportunities, the risk. AI was even front and center at a recent high-profile U.S. Senate hearing. That's because there's nothing artificial about the relevant issues raising their heads when AI meets the real world. It's clear that the use of advanced technologies must be consistent with federal laws pertaining to fair lending, fair housing, employment, and many other situations. Jones Day lawyers Dorothy Giobi and Alexander Majeri bring extensive relevant experience and insight to the timely conversation you're about to hear. Hang around. You'll like this one. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Dorothy Giobi is a skilled lawyer in the fintech and emerging technology space with an extensive track record of supporting innovative technology projects in the financial services industry. She has more than a decade of in-house legal experience as a trusted advisor to C-suite leadership regarding blockchain, distributed ledger technology, crypto assets, quantum computing, machine learning, and artificial intelligence, and bank regulation. Prior to joining Jones Day, Dorothy served as executive director and assistant general counsel of a global financial institution where she served as a key advisor to the bank's business leadership on emerging technology issues. And Alexander Majeri is a former senior U.S. Department of Justice official whose practice centers on financial markets litigation, DOJ investigations, and agency rulemakings. He was Deputy Assistant Attorney General and Chief of Staff in Washington for the DOJ Civil Rights Division, directing the Appellate, Employment Litigation, and Immigrant and Employee Rights Sections. Alexander, Dorothy, thanks so much for being here today. Great to be here, Dave. Thanks, Dave. You know, when we were getting ready for this program, we were talking about how many podcasts we've done, and it's a lot. Uh, we're a little north of 150, I think, at this point. And a lot of them veer into innovation and technology. And there was a recurring theme that keeps coming up, and that is at risk of dumbing all this down. The technology is always way ahead of the regulations and the laws and certainly the case law and so forth. We saw it with telemedicine. We've seen it in blockchain, robotics, self-driving vehicles, and so forth and so on. Artificial intelligence is certainly no exception. And we're seeing a lot of current evidence about that. It's AI that's the talk of the town suddenly, a technology that's come to the forefront of nearly every industry. But there's a lot to talk about here in terms of safeguards, regulations, and so forth. So we've got Alexander and Dorothy here to talk about it. Alexander, let's start with you. Um, before we get started, you and I have done a couple of videos together. I think this is our first podcast, correct? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes. So one good thing about a podcast is we get to do a slightly deeper dive. So I thought it might be beneficial in the context of this conversation. Talk about your background a little bit prior to coming to Jones Day and what you did at the Department of Justice and how this eventually gets us to what we're talking about today in AI. Sure. Yeah, it is, is it my first uh, podcast, Dave. Thanks. So here at Jones Day, my practice is trial and appellate practice, mostly on financial markets litigation. That includes fair lending and other class and aggregate litigation, as well as some rulemaking challenges and, and DOJ investigations. Before coming to Jones Day, I served from 2019 to 2021 as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General and Chief of Staff for the Civil Rights Division within the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. The Civil Rights Division is, is probably known 
to a lot of people for various things they do, whether it's sort of police misconduct or hate crimes. But as relevant to kind of our clients and, and corporations, one of the other portfolios they have is fair lending and fair housing enforcement, as well as employment litigation. And so from that vantage, I had an opportunity to see how the federal government thinks about these issues, how they build investigations, develop cases in new issue areas. I think your timing's terrific coming to the firm as artificial intelligence becomes such a factor in these things. But certainly everybody wants to stay in bounds and play by the rules and so forth. But there are times when, you know, an algorithm's developed and so forth, and you don't always know. But we'll talk about that in a second. But we're so glad you're here. So thanks for being here today, Alexander. Yeah, and, and, I mean, just to, to add to that one one point, Dave, which is um, you hit the nail on the head. The A lot of times these regulations are building on a legal infrastructure that dates back decades, maybe even a half century. So most of the laws that we're going to be talking about today are statutes that were passed in the 1960s and 1970s to attack a very different set of problems, long before the internet, certainly long before algorithms and AI. It's a fascinating time to practice law and it's a challenging environment for our clients as they're in this standpoint of having to determine how the government's gonna apply these old laws to very new situations. You almost, almost feel sorry for these legislators in Washington and in various state capitals. I mean, how can they possibly know, Alexander? You're right, some of these statutes were put in place. There was no internet. They couldn't even fathom something like that. So they're constantly playing catch up. And that's, I think, where talented lawyers come into view to help clients. Let's go back to Dorothy for a second. Dorothy, your background also is relevant to today's discussion. You came from a very large, global, significant financial institution. Mention how your work in-house at that institution informs how you're advising clients today with emerging technology and so forth. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Here at the firm, we are seeing a great deal of interest from clients about how emerging technologies like AI and machine learning can both help improve existing operations and processes, as well as create new products and services. And I think having worked in-house has given me maybe special insight into how business partners and other stakeholders develop products, think about markets, how they collaborate, and how legal partners and risk partners can support those initiatives. I always say that having been in-house and working side by side with the business partners has made me a better lawyer, and I, I really believe that. In terms of AI and machine learning, What's true is that from a technical standpoint, we're seeing it grow by leaps and bounds in terms of what it can be used for and what it can do. That's largely a positive trend and and the technology is moving very quickly. And with that speed of development, we also want to be thinking about how to navigate some of those regulatory issues and expectations about how the technology can be used. Here at the firm, I work on some of these issues and fintech issues generally with lawyers across practice groups, including, you know, regulatory, transactional, advisory litigators. And in this space, that that sort of collaboration, I think, is very important because the issues that we think about that are associated with this space can play out very differently depending on a particular use case. You can have any number of issues depending on your application, not the least consumer protection issues, which uh, is an area of great interest to regulators. I'm trying to remember, because you and I have talked several times, what was your 
background prior to the law. Did you have a technical or an engineering or that kind of mindset? How do you decide, I'm going to work on technical innovations in terms of financial services industry as a lawyer? How's that happen? You know, the reality is my interest in this space grew from my use and interest in some of these technologies as a consumer Mm. and the potential that I saw in how they could help just make things easier and make less friction and more efficiency. So it sort of naturally led into thinking about how this technology, different technologies could work in practice, but also from a professional's perspective, some of the legal and regulatory issues that they implicate. But it was really born out of a a personal interest in the technology. That's a heavy lift, right? It's hard enough being a great lawyer. It's hard enough understanding your client's needs. And then you throw in a new, constantly evolving, changing by the minute technology, and you're expected to keep up with that too? It's never dull, Dave. (laughs) I hope. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get down to the agenda. We're talking about AI and its attention being given by various regulators. And I'm going to read this so I don't get it wrong. In late April, the EEOC, DOJ, CFPB, and FTC released a joint statement basically saying that the use of advanced technologies, AI in this context, must be consistent with federal laws. You talk about a heavy lift, here's one. Alexander, let's first move into fair lending. And that's a, a big topic under this category, I guess. What's the regulatory landscape at the moment? And what's the potential impact of AI as institutions introduce it to their decision making? Well, it's a very interesting moment. So that what in April, that sort of alphabet soup of agencies came out with is essentially you had all the heads of any agency in the federal government that does civil rights or anti-discrimination, as well as the Federal Trade Commission, which generally is not seen as an anti-discrimination entity. And, and so their participation is significant because what it means is for anyone listening, the FTC can touch sort of any sector that has interactions with the consumer. So if you're not a bank, you're not a housing entity, you're, you're not doing employment law, FTC sort of has the same ability. So what does this mean? So the announcement essentially boils down to a culmination of a lot of focus by these regulators on what algorithmic technologies AI mean for the discrimination space. And to be candid, federal enforcers at these agencies have uh, displayed a really innate skepticism of artificial intelligence. The public statements have generally been from the standpoint of concerns about how algorithms could perpetuate biases or discrimination in the system. That's different than what a lot of us hear from our clients and consumers about sort of a lot of the promise behind these technologies. And it really points to sort of you're you're at a critical moment where regulators may be suspicious, but it creates sort of an opportunity for for the regulated community to explain to government, harking back to what you said, Dave, that the government regulators don't necessarily understand the technologies and they certainly don't understand them as well as people like Dorothy when she was in house. And so a, a key part of this is is education. But these regulators, they all have essentially similar enforcement of unfair practices or similar, it's called UDAP authorities. They can all use this. State attorney generals also have this authority. And so what this means is these regulators, if they get interested in an algorithmic technology, they could bring that under scrutiny and sort of investigate, 
subpoena, file lawsuits, work with the plaintiff's bar. Sure. Dorothy, let's go back to your in-house days that we've, we've talked about a couple times. And we're so glad you're not in-house anymore. We're glad you're at Jones Day now. We love it. Describe how are financial institutions using these algorithmic applications in terms of making decisions, in terms of productivity, lending, et cetera, et cetera? I think as a general matter, and this isn't specific to any one institution, we can think about how financial institutions use algorithms and models in two different ways. The first is in non-customer facing models. So algorithms for internal use, like improving internal operations, fraud and risk models, forecasting models, things like that. And then, and then second are customer facing algorithms or models including for use in customer service or using models to help assess what products or services may be of interest to customers or to provide a better customer experience. To take a very simple example, think about something as familiar as Face ID and logging into your bank account from your phone using Face ID and what a better experience that is as compared to having to enter your password each time you check into your bank account. Face ID is really just a mathematical formula or an algorithm that's used to prove that you are who you say you are, who you claim to be. Security stuff, right? Right, exactly. And it offers a vastly improved customer experience. And so something as simple as that uh, was introduced a little over five years ago and now is ubiquitous. The most important issue in customer-facing use of algorithms and models is that institutions, regulators, and the public have trust in the technology and the manner in which it's used, particularly if it's used in a way that has impact to a given individual or to the public at large, which I think is what Alexander has been touching on. Yeah, Dorothy, if I can just pick up on that, I mean, I think we heard from the CFPB talking about these issues, talking about how artificial intelligence algorithms, the quote was, often feels like black boxes behind brick walls. That's a really great encapsulation of what Dorothy's talking about, which is if that's the way it feels to consumers and regulators, then there's risk or greater risk. And I think that that connects to the opportunity both the regulated community and you know, hopefully regulators have, which is to better understand these technologies, the inputs and, and how they function exactly so that smart decisions about uh, enforcement and policy can be made. You know, I'm getting way into the weeds here, but if, if transparency is important in terms of satisfying regulators and making sure everything's done correctly, are there proprietary processes that some banks might have? Where, where do you draw that line or how do you prove that we're not doing anything wrong without giving away the store. Am I oversimplifying this? I'm good at that. So tell me if I am. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think one thing in particular where I focus is companies can understand kind of the impact of their technologies. They can run analyses on demographic groups or women or various profiles and understand just sort of how it's shaking out in the marketplace. First off, that doesn't have to be turned over to regulators. That can be done in a confidential privileged context. But it's important to do because that way, you know, Dave, to your point, you're not going to turn over your proprietary model to a regulator. But 
if you understand sort of impacts or have studies or have looked at these issues, then if you're facing a lawsuit subpoena or just a public inquiry, you're going to be able to respond in a way that I think would assuage concern as opposed to starting that effort once someone comes knocking at the door when it can be you know, hard and time consuming. Yeah, at least you've demonstrated the right intent. That's for certain. Dorothy, let's go back to you for a second. It seems like, and again, calling your experience again, it seems like financial institutions are in a tough spot. It's a hyper-competitive industry. You want to do right by your customers. It's aggressive. People have sales quotas. It, it's a tough. They want to make money and they want to make money fast. They've got shareholders and a board to satisfy and so forth. So innovation is enticing. If this is going to make us faster, better, leaner, stronger, whatever. And yet, yet, you know, there are traps out there in terms of, geez, inadvertently, the way this algorithm was set up, we're discriminating against certain populations, areas, whatever. I mean, how does a client manage this? Where do you even begin? So I think where you, where you really begin is the use case, what you are using a given model for in a particular circumstance. Because just as we were just touching on the issue of transparency or related terms, explainability, transparency and explainability doesn't have to be one size fits all. There potentially you could have explainability, meaning transparency into how a model works as a general matter versus very specific explainability or transparency into how a specific was res result was reached in a particular case. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing or one or the other. It's important to, to think about the issue around the issues around transparency and explainability in that way. But getting back to your question, we start with use case and very robust governance around AI and ML uses is very important. At the end of the day, as we say, the public, the regulators, and all of the stakeholders and the institutions have to have comfort that the use of AI for a given application is trustworthy. And so the use of frameworks like model governance, data use forums, so you're thinking about what is feeding your model, where the data is coming from, legal and compliance teams, you really have to bring everyone together to understand the business use case, the intent and purpose of the model, how it will be governed and reviewed or assessed on an ongoing basis, really stressing the importance of model risk review and strong governance structures where everyone has input and has a seat at the table. You always seem optimistic when we have these conversations. Oh, I do, Dave. Well, you are. You strike me as someone who thinks that the industry, meaning in this case, financial institutions, is going to be able to get its arms around this and figure this out and make it work. This is just a speed bump. This isn't a whole detour, right? I think it's an ongoing effort and it's important to remain vigilant and have these structures, evergreen processes and procedures. But yes, I think they, you know, they want to be compliant, certainly want to get it right and put the resources and investment in place to do so. Yeah, what Dorothy's talking about is so important, you know, Dave, because to take an analogy from when I was in government, what we would often do in the employment sort of sector is we would look at civil rights division looks at state and local governments. So, and I promise this come in algorithms, but we'd look at state and local governments and one of the ways we would assess the employment discrimination, let's say you have a fire department or a police station, training tests. How are the tests designed? Are they equitable in the sense that are they fair to female 
potential firefighters or minority applicants. And what we would run into a lot is state and local governments would say, well, I got this from a vendor who told me my model or my test was validated. And they said it was anti-discrimination compliant. So I relied on that. And I think that that wasn't enough for us then. And I think it's particularly true and apt now when we're talking about sophisticated algorithms or as we make the leap into artificial intelligence. I do think that vigilance that Dorothy's talking about and understanding the products, both that you innovate and and roll out, but also anything that you're planning to use or provide customer data to use, it won't be an answer, certainly not a complete answer to say that you didn't understand how the product worked. And so it's really important to make sure that, that you're kicking the tires and understanding the processes and not outsourcing that um, to whomever the vendor might be. Is there a uh, process to make sure, let's say, and I know this isn't the right term, but if it's an off-the-shelf product, right? Here's something that a vendor came to us, it was expensive, it's supposed to work, whatever. Okay, fine. But then are there steps you need to go through internally, Alexander? with the help of perhaps someone like you or Dorothy, whatever, how do you make sure it's compliant? I mean, because probably the chief technology officer at a regional bank might not know enough about this. How do they find out? What do they do? Yeah, I wished I had a silver bullet for you, Dave. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution to that. It's a process of testing. So in the employment context, sometimes you talk about tests being validated. So there's a similar process you can go through with sort of an algorithm. But The problem is, and and we'll come to this, when you talk about unintentional kind of forms of discrimination, you're probably never going to be able to eliminate all forms of what sort of the law refers to as adverse impact. So just the unfortunate realities of society are such that every decision is going to have some kind of ripple effect, and sometimes there are unintended consequences. So it's really a risk management approach. This isn't a sky is falling, you talk to a speed bump moment. This is more of a opportunity to really get your arms around it, to understand the risk, and and then sort of weigh the trade-offs. You know, if you're a small institution, not using this very often, that may look differently than if if an industry or an institution is pioneering a brand new technology that they're going to roll out. And so, you know, those those just have to be decided on a case-by-case basis. Sure, sure. Do you want to talk for a moment about investigations and enforcement. Alexander, talk about the kinds of tools, regulators, and even class action plaintiffs. We haven't gotten to that part of this yet, but there, there are probably some tools these interested parties could use in terms of enforcement, investigations, and so forth. What do they have to work with? Yeah, I'll point out a couple of things. So first off, we talked about how we're talking about largely old laws applied to new situations. So Civil Rights Act, Fair Housing Act, those are passed in the 1960s. We have the Equal Credit Opportunity Act passed in 1974. So these are being updated. One of the ways the government updates them is they pass new regulations, and we'll come to that. There's a brand new regulation on what's called disparate impact liability that will have some consequences for financial services and other sectors. Another thing the government does is they partner with the class action plaintiff's bar. And an effective way that they do that as a bit of a force multiplier, is they file friend of the court or amicus briefs in class actions. So my prior agency, Civil Rights Division, has been doing this recently in some high-profile class actions brought under the fair lending or fair housing laws. The government will come in, they'll file a brief. Maybe they're not technically supporting the plaintiffs or the defendants, but they're just giving the government's views about the law. That can really change the dynamic for a client, for an industry. Now, all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, the government's interested in your case takes on a new valence. 
that's just something to watch. Where is the government, because it's one thing to issue a press release, but where is the government going to start filing briefs might be a, a pretty good indication of where the government's looking next uh, to start launching investigations and enforcement actions. Okay, so the uh, joint announcement came out, I think, towards the end of April, not even quite a month. Are you seeing any indications of where some enforcement might be going, or is that inside stuff that we shouldn't talk about here? Well, it's premature right now to know exactly. What I would highlight is in March of this year, we had HUD, Department of Housing and Urban Development, come out with the, the disparate impact rule that I mentioned. That's under the Fair Housing Act, which was passed and signed by Lyndon Johnson, late 60s. But now we have a new rule that is taking that and applying it to this unintentional discrimination that we've been talking about. And so it, it probably just makes sense to take a minute and sort of explain what that is. So sure. disparate impact liability or unintentional discrimination, you know, it might seem a little bit like an oxymoron, but the idea is that you could have a neutral policy or practice that has disproportionate harm on a protected group. Perhaps that's women, perhaps that's a racial or ethnic minority. It could protect others, a disability uh, group of disabled individuals. And this started in the Title VII employment context about 50 years ago, but it's been recognized under many of the federal civil rights statutes, including the Fair Housing Act. The Fair Housing Act is a primary way that the government regulates fair lending, things that touch on housing like mortgage lending. And so this new rule, the upshot of it is it will make it much easier for the government and plaintiffs to investigate and bring cases. And so there's a need now for private companies to start thinking about the way that their neutral practices, maybe many of them are longstanding. What are the business justifications for these practices? What kind of statistical experts might you marshal? Who's around in your company who, to Dorothy's point, who understands and can speak about these practices? So now, before the wave of, of action, is a really great opportunity um, to do those accountings. We're in a large organization. Does this happen? Is it human resources, tech? Who quarterbacks this kind of thing if there needs to be an internal kind of review of where you're at in some of these policies? Where does that typically start or end? One of the things that trade associations and, and often we're engaged with businesses or trade associations is sometimes companies think that the regulations have gone too far, that sort of in reinterpreting a rule or statute from many years ago, that the agency has exceeded the bounds that Congress set out for it. Obviously, this is something that companies have to think judiciously about, but there can be opportunities to push back and to challenge regulations as they come out. And I think stepping back at a, at a large level, um, again, at the risk of oversimplifying, there's a little bit of a fork in the road right now. Agencies, particularly from the executive branch of government at the federal level, are asserting more and more novel and broad authorities mm-hmm. over all sorts of, of areas. We're just seeing that across disciplines. We're also at a moment when the judiciary, the judges on the courts, from the lower courts to the Supreme Court, are exercising an unprecedented level of skepticism and control over kind of the guardrails that Congress set when passing these laws. And so it's a really delicate situation that, you know, we all are always sort of talking to clients about because you, on the one hand, need to stay in the good graces of regulators. You also just, on all of these issues, want to comply. I mean, I think 
by and large, you know, corporations have every, every interest in complying with the rules of the road. But when you have some of these very broad and malleable standards that won't always be controlled by the government, but can also be brought by private plaintiffs bars, which can be a little less accountable, there can be opportunities to push back. I know a lot of times, and we don't know where this ends up in terms of regs eventually and so forth and what what's new and what's applied. But there are comment periods typically, right? If new regulations are proposed, you know, they go out to industry players and say, look, you got 30 days to let us know. The point is people can't be heard, Alexander, right? No, absolutely. And, and Dave, we're going to turn you into an administrative lawyer because spot on with that, because I'm in New York, but I sit in our, our government regulation practice. And one of the things that, that we try to do, in addition to kind of navigate compliance issues with the government, is think about exactly that, how you comment on a rule, how you sort of influence the outcome of the rule, whether it's in the financial services or elsewhere, but then also how do you build a record um, so that an industry or trade association could challenge a rule that a, a group thinks goes too far. And so that's something that you know I help clients with routinely, and I think that can often be a precursor to litigation, but it can also, as you said, just be a way for industry to to be heard and hopefully the regulators listen and, and, and modify the proposal. Yeah, yeah. And, and you got to be encouraged that, you know, they're hearing at least most of the time, which is great. I want to go back to Dorothy and her experience. It seems like as we're talking about AI and these algorithms and how they're applied and financial services, banks tend to be very high profile in these things. Blockchain, for instance, the banks are big and the funds and so forth, very high profile, and everyone's always interested in what they're doing. Given the climate, with all the attention uh, being put on industry, what do banks and other financial institutions need to know? How do they prepare for this? Are they ready or can they be ready in short order? You know, I think that in addition to establishing and maintaining these strong internal governance structures that we've talked about. It's important to have an ongoing dialogue between an institution and and that institution's regulators about the ways in which the institution is or would like to use uh, models or algorithms and an associated risk considerations. Regulators are interested in this technology. They're certainly focused on it. And they want to ensure that it's used in a responsible manner. And so that means more engagement to me. And in some cases, collaboration between public and private entities. That kind of an engagement serves everyone's interests from an institutional perspective as well as a regulatory perspective. And that's so encouraging. But that's the tightrope, right? And we talk about this all the time. I'm talking from a regulator's perspective. Yeah, certainly you want to encourage innovation and investment and the great things that come out of that, but you want to make sure that people play nice, right? And that's a tough spot. And we don't always have a lot of sympathy for the regulators. They're in a tough spot too. The banks are, the regulators are. So you're in an interesting position right now, Dorothy. I think you're going to be busy the next couple of years. Am I allowed to say that? I, I think so. With this and you know, emerging technologies and fintech as a whole, sure. there is a there's an enormous amount of dialogue happening between companies who are innovating and regulators who are charged with overseeing and, and protecting uh, consumers and protecting markets. And so that 
takes a lot of uh, uh, of our time here at the firm. Sure. And I think that will only continue. All right. Let's wrap up with this because you've been very generous with your time. I always miss something, even after 150 plus podcasts. So give me a takeaway. We'll start with Alexander, then wrap with Dorothy. Someone listening to this Jones Day talks, and we're talking about artificial intelligence and fair lending and all the attendant issues. Alexander, if you had to have one key takeaway, like, all right, if you missed everything else, if you've forgotten everything else, what do you got to remember? Dave, I'd circle back to something I said earlier, which is do the inventory, understand how you're using the technologies, and start thinking about those principles that Dorothy identified, explainability, and how you would justify it. And if you want to go one step further, think about engaging with in-house or external counsel to start thinking about the risks, to understand things like disparate impact, so that you can be prepared. Because the last thing you want is a subpoena or a lawsuit to be the first time that you, one, have to determine, do we even use this technology? And if so, how? Or aren't in a position to marshal sort of facts and evidence to support your, your uses. Real good. Dorothy, same question. What do people need to come away from this conversation with? Yeah, I would echo Alexander's, Alexander's comments. Don't wait until you think either, you know, this is all going to sort of fall into place or the regulars are all going to figure out. Things are happening and developing very quickly. They will only continue to develop. And so keeping abreast of, the, of those, the regulatory perspective and expectations around use of this technology and other emerging technologies is really critically important. So that would be my takeaway. Don't wait. Work with your organization and, and stakeholders in your organization with your counsel, have someone come in, learn, and make sure that you're comfortable with your use of the technology and the ways in which you are managing that use. Great wrap up, Dorothy. Alexander, thanks. We are living in interesting times, that's for certain. So thank you both for your time today. I've got a feeling we're going to do this again pretty soon because this is certainly a fluid situation, that's for sure. So. Alexander, Dorothy, thanks so much. We'll be in touch. Thanks, Great Dave. Great to be with you, Dave. Take care. Bye, Have Dave. a good day. For complete bios and contact information for Dorothy and Alexander, visit jonesday.com. And while you're there, go to our insights page where you'll find more podcasts, videos, publications, newsletters, and other relevant contact. Jones Day Talks is produced by Tom Condolis. As always, we thank you for listening. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.